Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm Shiva, the god of death. Oh, sorry, wrong week. Uh, I'm TJ. <laughs> and this is Serious Film People. <laughs> our, <laughs> our series on the movies nominated for Best Picture in 2007. 2007 Movies, 2008 Ceremony. And this is the fourth, fourth? Yeah, fourth, fourth. episode in our series. And TJ was just referencing the third episode in our series, Michael Clayton, if you haven't listened to that already. Go back in the feed and check that one out. It's a good episode. Today we're not talking about Michael Clayton. Today we're talking about No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Uh, a movie that I am immensely, immensely, immensely fond of. I think all three of us are immensely, immensely fond of. Compared to what? The bubonic plague? <laughs> <laughs> TJ sets a very low bar for f- films. I'm going to try to do this entire episode in lines from the movie. I'm just kidding. Uh... I I would advise against that personally. Um, then TJ wouldn't be talking very much. No, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Keep it up. We'll take you in the back and screw you, uh, TJ. <laughs> when did you first see this? I, I assume it was either in theaters or shortly thereafter. When did you first see this, and what's your relationship to it since it came out? So I'm gonna film bro this big time in the sense that yeah. there there are certain movies that I love that I you know come to later or that I have to see a couple times before I appreciate them one being citizen kane and there are others that when you see them at least for me like once once the title at the end comes up written and directed by you're like i just saw a masterpiece you know i saw one of the old timers Mm -hmm. so i can remember like i I can picture which theater we were in in the o'fallon 15 then warenberg now marcus cinema uh my father myself and my brother uh, seeing this in like December of 2007. And I also remember, because this was a time in my life that I'm really proud of, arguing with some people at the end of the movie, like other people in the audience, who were like, that's it? That ending's so stupid. <laughs> and I'm like, hold on a second. Um, and of course, we'll get to that later. But yeah, that was a thing. I also did that with next week's film, uh, There Will Be Blood, where I, I picked picked a fight with people in the theater afterward. Uh, but anyway, so I, I saw it there, um, and when it came out on DVD, I still have it just on DVD. I know that's gross. Uh, Me too. Watched it many, many times. Um, Josh and I were kind of talking about this off microphone. Conservatively, I've probably seen this movie 18 or 20 times. Um, I've shown clips of it in my classes. Uh, I read the novel. It's it, it doesn't get old. It doesn't get old. No, it does not. Ken? So uh, I also I also saw this when it first came out. I remember going to the theater to see this movie. I mean, it was it was the latest Coen Brothers film, and uh, I was already a fan of the Coens at the time. And granted, this is this was definitely not a normal Coen Brothers film. And I remember by the end of it, yeah, there was a mixed reaction from the audience. And yet, I remember going into school, and I remember throughout the early part of two thousand eight that early that January, February period, uh, having fantastic conversations with, with the two of you, as well as other guys in our class. Um, I don't know if it was a, I don't know if it was a generational thing. Cause, uh, I remember my dad, not he big fan of Coen brothers, not immediately loving it. Um, and yet I was, I was just in awe of the movie from the start. I was impressed. I've seen it probably less than the two of you. I'm fairly sure. I've probably only seen it once every few years. I'll revisit it. Um, it's There's a rookie number. Just gotta get those numbers yeah, up. It's it's not it's not one that I'm constantly revisiting. It is, however, one that I constantly catch 
pieces of on television and will invariably, however long I have to sit there and watch it, will sit there and pick up, you know, half an hour here, 45 minutes there, just because it's on. Well, and and to jump in on something you said, um, and I think it is very much, and we'll get into this later, but I think it is very much a Coen Brothers movie, but it did re- um, at the time represent a little bit of a resurgence for them. I've, I've seen their entire filmography, and in the mid-2000s, they had just come off of Intolerable Cruelty and the Lady Killers, right. which yeah. a lot of people will say are some of their lesser films and their, their um, kind of cartoonish screwball movies. Yes. So they had, I, I think, O Brother, Where Art Thou, which was what, 2000? 2001? 2000. 2000. O Brother, 2000. Was like the last like great Coen Brothers entry before this, which was seven years before this. The man who wasn't there is awesome, I was just about though. to say, that's mm. like 2001, okay, yeah. 2002? That's, that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The point to be taken, this was certainly the darkest and least humor-filled Coen Brothers movie since Blood Simple, probably, since the very first. But it is By very f- funny. It, oh, it, it, it is, is very but you don't funny. Hear, do you remember to that? To say very funny is a big stretch. It, it is very funny. It is funnier than, like, Juno. It's funnier than a lot of comedies. It has funny okay. moments, but do you remember anybody laughing out loud in the theater? Uh, I did. I said, do you remember okay, anybody else? It's a, <laughs> and I, I was training people being like, that's funny. You should be laughing. No, I didn't do that. That would have been terrible. But Josh, you, your history. Go. That's right. Well, I thought you'd never ask. When this came out, I was in my first film class with Mr. Mark Cummings, a friend of all three of us. And um, that fall, he was like hyping up upcoming releases. And I'm, the three movies I remember him hyping up specifically were No Controlled Men, There Will Be Blood, and of all things, Sweeney Todd. And all three of which I saw as soon as they hit theaters, basically, because he hyped them up for like two months beforehand. And I'll say this again when we talk about There Will Be Blood, but what was so crazy was that because I was in my first film class, and because I was like, you know, learning about movies for the first time, and like realizing there are movies made before we were born, and movies that were that played maybe not the multiplex that I was used to, you know, movies outside the mainstream. So I was like, I was discovering movies for the first time, basically. And some of the first couple movies I see as I'm discovering movies are No Controlled Men and There Will Be Blood. And so my thought is like, holy shit, movies, movies exist. Are they all like this? Yeah, <laughs> like, two- is this just a world that I haven't been aware of my whole life? 2007 is a great year to take your first deep dive. Spoilers, they are not all like this. Not <laughs> Most movies are not No Controlled Men and There Will Be Blood. But what what a treat, what a delight that uh, these are some of the first, some I got to experience in theaters. Mind-expanding movies, uh, world-expanding movies. And um, yeah, like you, TJ, I saw this one and was just blown the hell away. Like, I, I, again, like, I didn't know movies could be this good. You know, and and for a second, for a split second, I was like, are all movies this good? And I just like, I'm not aware of them. But uh, no, that's not the case. The three of us, as a fun little exercise last year, uh, put together a top 100 of all time that we've seen personally. And I'm looking at my list now. No Controlled Men is number seven on my top 100 best movies I've ever seen list. If you catch me on the right day, this is the best movie I've ever seen. Wow. Depending on what kind of mood I'm in, I think. Um but the day I made that list, it was number seven. Uh, Ken, you mentioned your dad didn't respond to as much. This is one of my dad's favorite movies. This also might be my dad's favorite movie. My dad uh, he, likes it's at least it. Top three. Let me let me in case he's listening. Give him some give him some credit. 
he likes the movie. It's just not his favorite Coen Brothers film. And for a sure. man who loves the Coen Brothers, it's it was just stepping outside of what he was he's usually expecting from them. Not that he doesn't appreciate the film. I don't think I knew who the Coen Brothers were when this came out. I don't think I had yet discovered them. I might have sought out Big Lebowski. I remember Lady. I remember the Lady Killers coming out because we were like in middle school and that happened. But I didn't like. I didn't know who the Coen Brothers were. I just knew Tom Hanks was in it and that kind of stuff. I remember my first introduction to them was Oh Country Where or um, Oh Brother Where Art Thou. No Country Where Art yeah, Thou. No yeah, No Country. I country. Oh, oh Brother Where Art Thou was the first I remember going okay, to see, true. and I remember because we had the soundtrack too. Yeah. Um, I don't think I discovered Fargo till months after i saw no controlled men but um i didn't have much of a relationship with Coen brothers like uh it was just like another uh, a movie that my film teacher was talking about and that's that was my relationship to it and i went to go see it in theaters i don't remember where or when but uh, i remember being blown away immediately and now they're they're probably your favorite filmmakers number one or number two right? they are they are my favorite filmmakers yeah. now yes the, the Coen brothers even though i've <laughs> i say that and i haven't seen all of their movies like i the reason i forgot about the man who wasn't there is i haven't seen the man who wasn't there oh I have it on Blu-ray. I have it on oh. Blu-ray 10 feet from here now, but I've never just, I never popped it in it's and so given good. it a shot. It's so good. Uh, I, I believe you, given uh, the, the pedigree involved. Let's talk a little background on No Controlled Men. It's based on a Cormac McCarthy novel, also called No Controlled Men, which I read last year and I remember liking a lot and remember it was very much like the movie, but I don't remember many specifics. I have a very, I have a tough time retaining books that I read. Um, but I remember it being extremely similar to the movie. TJ, do we have any literature corner about No Country? Uh, we can have a brief literature corner about it. I, I don't have the novel on me. I didn't reread it. I'm not going to quote passages. Did you hear that collective sigh? Um, but the novel <laughs> came out in 2005, and you're correct. It is very, very much like the film. Um, the film is quite a faithful adaptation, um, lifting whole scenes, whole passages, whole bits of dialogue. It is primarily narrated by ed tom and a lot of every chapter every chapter begins with ed tom's narration is that right yeah if i, I recall think. he's yeah he's a more central role there's also more of his backstory i was just gonna say that yeah ken you've read it i have once long yeah, uh, yeah. it's been a while I, okay once and that's a lot of what we lose in the film um which i think is a good choice it works in the novel i don't know that we would need it in the film um and with all of McCarthy's work, it, like the 10 other of his novels, he has two coming out later this year, actually, uh, which is wild because uh, the dude's like 82, 84. He's like very that. old. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's Southern Gothic. It's nihilistic. It's incredibly violent. Um, it has a lot to do with uh, men, aging, life and death, hope in the darkness, uh, mythology, violence. Law and lawlessness. All of those things, right? Um, yeah. And what's funny is, even though this obviously isn't the case, um, I did hear in an interview or read in an interview one time that the Coens were asked about the process of adapting Cormac McCarthy because he's regarded as not just one of the best living American writers, but like maybe one of the best American writers, period. And supposedly they said something to the effect of Ethan holds the book open while Joel types. Um, yes, was, I remember reading was that as well. joke. Yes. Um, Very cheeky, which is like. Somewhat true, because like you said, a very faithful adaptation, as I recall, and like it was the adaptation process was basically just compression. Like they didn't like right. really invent any scenes; they basically just cut stuff mm-hmm. and streamline stuff. Yeah. Um, and I also remember when they accepted their Oscar for best adapted screenplay. Spoiler: This one best adapted screenplay. Uh, they made some kind of comment about like adaptation and how 
they're very selective with things they choose to adapt because up to that point they'd only chosen to adapt homer and Cormac mccarthy mm, yeah <laughs> being the good choices good choices yeah very good choices yes so that was TJ's Literature Corner. Oh, wait, do you want to give us a, a bonus TJ's Literature Corner yes. about the title of Ra- the book? Round two. So the title of the book, which I think is an excellent title, No Country for Old Men. Yes, it is. Um, yes, it is. Is stolen from, borrowed from, it's an allusion to the first line of the poem Sailing to Byzantium by William Butler Yeats. He's an Irish modernist poet from the early um, 20th century. And his poem, it's... 32 lines, it's in four stanzas. Each stanza has eight lines. Uh, Don't read the whole thing, please. I, I will not. I will not. <laughs> okay, um, thank you. The, the poem is about being an aging man and trying to maintain some sense of your soul and your goodness as you're looking around you and recognizing that the world is changing. You don't understand the world anymore. You don't see yourself as a part of this world and how can you while you're tied to kind of a beastly an animal body that's dying and decaying how can you keep your soul from dying and decaying along with it so you can hear just within that sort of description that's pretty much exactly what the movie's about uh particularly vis-a-vis ed tom bell sheriff ed tom bell played by um timely jones so as a tease i will say that i think i think the movie is a incredibly made incredibly riveting and watchable cat and mouse thriller on the surface and much like other movies we've talked about particularly one for the cuckoo's nest you can engage with it just on that simple simple level of like this is a an entertaining as hell cat and mouse thriller and then you can there is so 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 much to dig into thematically but i think most of the thematic stuff to dig into is having to do with uh Tommy lee jones and ed tom bell um we can talk about that more as we get into it and that's where i think people sort of misunderstand actually what the film's about um one of the great baitens well i mean this will come later but i'll just say this it is his story it's it's ed tom's story from the beginning through the end and i think some people's uh frustration with where certain plot lines go and how the film ends comes from not recognizing that right well it opens with his narration it ends with him talking about his dreams and arguably Llewellyn's story ends with an anti-climax and the actual climax of the movie is a non-showdown between Ed Tom and Anton Sugar. So it's Ed Tom's climax basically is the climax of the movie. Um, I agree though that I think that if you're not willing to engage with the Ed Tom at all, you're going to be disappointed by the ending probably uh, and maybe disappointed by several things, but we'll get to that. Uh, as I said, adapted from a novel by Cormac McCarthy. It was made for $25 million, made $172 million at the box office, which is, like, really good. Uh, I mean, I realize it won Best Picture, so, you know, they usually do decent business. But also split between 43% domestic and 57% international. That also surprised me. That that surprises me, yeah. The fact this doesn't that, seem like a movie that would travel that well. Right, it yeah. It is, so, it, is, it is a surprise to see that that many people outside of North America went to the theaters to see this movie when it came out. Yeah. The yeah. the Coens though have been canned darlings in the past, so I think they have they have, been, they have yes. a lot of European con um, darlings. It didn't really make much on any given weekend. Like I'm looking at it now, it just made like pretty steady money. It made like a million or two dollars a lot, like for like eight or ten weeks in a row. Um, I think it may have made four or five million at most in a given weekend. So like it just probably good word of mouth, good steady money. Not made for eight Oscars. 
it made something if i recall it made something like 75 ish million domestically so that makes sense it just 75 domestic it yeah. just picked up a you know a, a decent chunk of change every weekend for a longer period of time from december the start of december through to the start of march it was making anywhere from one to four million dollars every weekend really one to three million dollars every weekend which is great weekend to weekend two, three, two it's, three straight months yeah, yeah it's not seeing a drop off it's just it's yep. doing cons- consistent business that's that's something we don't even see today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see, we covered Literature Corner. Oh, uh, TJ. Yes. This movie. This movie is edited by Roderick James. <laughs> Tell me a fun fact about Roderick James. Roderick James uh, does not exist. And Correct. what I mean by that is that is a pseudonym, a nom de plume of Joel and Ethan Cohen. Um, so it's edited by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Now, Roderick James is one of the few people, I believe there's only two, there might have been a third one in there, um, who does not exist to be nominated for an Academy Award. Another being Donald Kaufman. Um, Donald Kaufman, I was going to bring him up, yep. I, I think that, personally, I think this film should have won Best Editing. I believe Christopher I Rouse won for The Bourne Ultimatum, which is certainly the most edited film, because the average shot length there is like 0.9 seconds. But I think that part of the... One, the editing in this is pretty invisible, and that makes it good editing, but that also makes it harder to um, recognize. But I think that probably part of why it did not win was people didn't want to... The, the Coens would not have gotten the Oscar. Um, it goes to Roderick Janes, who doesn't exist. So I think they were just kind of like, let's give it to someone who actually does exist and can take this home. Is that the first Oscar nomination for Roderick Janes? It can't be, can it? No, I think Roderick Janes was nominated for Fargo, I think. That... That would make sense. Yeah, but. I'm I'm kind of appalled that neither No Country nor There Will Be Blood won Best Editing. I didn't. I don't think I knew that. Well, I guess I knew that, but like, Born Ultimatum won three of the Oscars that No Country was nominated for, being Best Editing, Best Sound Editing, and Best Sound Mixing. And the fact that none of those three went to either No Country or There Will Be Blood is, um, again, appalling to me. In its defense, I think. I think sound editing makes perfect sense for the Bourne Ultimatum. Have you so, seen the Derek explosion in There Will Be Blood at Kent Dusseld? Have we'll, you seen it? We'll get there next week. We'll get there next okay. week. I'm, what I'm saying is I think I, chances are this could have been this could have been one of those sound splits. But of course, the Academy, which is why they, uh, they went back to combining them, the Academy voters couldn't tell the difference if they weren't in the sound category. They weren't in the, the excuse me, the sound branch. Uh, yeah. No one could tell the difference between the two, and so they they often go to the same movie or two movies that are all about sound. Um, so let's get into the movie itself. And I I wrote down a few notes, and my notes kind of like dive into each element in like increasing complexity. As I said, like you can enjoy the movie on a very surface level, and then you can dig into it and enjoy it more, and then dig into it and enjoy it even more. So I'm kind of like the discussion points that I have written down are kind of like take it in that in that direction. So the the cat and mouse element, um, one of the things I admire about the Coen brothers is that their movies all have very, very clean premises, and I'm such a sucker for a movie with a clean premise. You you also um, like movies where people get in over their heads, and that's the thrust of Llewellyn. That's, as I've said to both of you, my my favorite genre of movie is character gets in over their heads, which is why I like the Softies, I love the Coens, Fargo is my current answer for my favorite movie of all time. Um... And a, a, a hunter in rural Texas stumbling across a drug deal gone wrong and finding a bag of money and being pursued for that bag of money is a very clean premise and a very clear example of a character getting in over his head. Bags of money 
are always a great motivation for Coen Brothers characters. I love bags of money movies. Uh, <laughs> Fargo is, in, in a sense, a bag of money movie. No Country's a bag of money movie. Um, on HBO Max right now, I'm, I'm halfway through watching A Simple Plan, the um, Sam Raimi movie from the late 90s that's also a bag of money movie. Um, man, bag of money movies are the best. They really are. But so, yes, Llewellyn is in over his head because he is, but only because he's up against this demonic force in human form, basically, in Anton Chigurh, played by Javier Bardem. Because one thing that I think is extremely satisfying watching the movie over and over again is um, what I like to call competency porn. Like, it's really fun to watch people be good at something. That's why I think Spotlight is a very good movie because you're just watching people be good at their jobs. That's why The Martian is very satisfying to watch because you're just watching someone be very smart and do science and survive. And like in this, like watching Llewellyn in the hotel room when he hides the money with like the the curtain rod and, you know, he he, he buys the tent poles and like ties up right. the uh, the hangers on the edge of the tent poles. And he just, he just knows what to do. Even before that, when he first like, when he's hunting and first comes across the trucks, like... He knows to approach slowly with his gun out. He, you know, he checks all the all the bodies. He takes the pistol from the guy who's still alive. Um, he knows immediately that there's money missing because he finds the drugs in the car and knows that there's a ultimo hombre, a last man, right. and he knows how to track him down. Um, he's just extremely competent and like knows what he's doing in any given situation. He's way more competent than, than I would be, or either of you. No offense, you know. So like, watching him maneuver this is very satisfying, you know, and like. On the other side of the coin, you have the same thing with Shigur himself, because Shigur is also scarily, scarily competent um, and good at tracking down Llewellyn. And you get that when he um, – the, the obvious example is when he blows up the car outside the – is that a, it's like a uh, pharmacy, pharmacy or like a yeah. vet yeah. office? It's like a pharmacy. I, th- I, think in the, I think in the book it's a veterinarian office, but in the movie it's just a regular pharmacy. But – um, I could be wrong about that. But, like, you know, when he blows up the car to get the supplies and then just goes to a hotel room and, like, removes bullet fragments from his leg, numbs his leg, gives himself antibiotics. Like, he just knows how to do everything. And, and I'm so in awe of that. But even before that, like, when he goes to the hotel room before he shoots three Mexicans, um, something that I didn't understand what he was doing when I first saw the movie. But now that I've seen it ten times, I get it. He goes into his own room and he does three things. He checks how quickly he can turn the light on when he comes in the room. Because his plan is to just go in there, turn the light on, and start shooting. He checks the thickness of the hotel room walls, yep. so he can t- he can tell if he can shoot through them or not. And he checks the layout of the closet in the bathroom to see where people might be hiding in this room when he goes in there. So, sorry, I'm rambling, but my point is like it's very satisfying to watch people be good at stuff. And like, Llewellyn is very good at stuff, but Shigur is also scarily good at stuff and better at stuff. Um, TJ, any, anything on all this? Sorry, I, I just that was a lot of a lot of stuff. No, that's that's good. Um, and that you know the other thing that's a part of that as well is that uh, Llewellyn is a Vietnam veteran. Um, yes, he is. And they're they're kind of opposite sides of the same coin thing. Even though you know you you get the sense that Sugar is going to catch up to him and that he's he's outmatched. Is you know early on we see how efficient as you've said, Duel Moss is, but then um, what's scary is that you then start to go, wow, this guy's good, but he's not good enough. And yeah. the, the way that they're there's, tied... There's never a point. There's yeah. never a point where you think he's going to get away. Right. The, the way that they're tied together right at the beginning, too, is when Sugar kills the first motorist with the cattle gun, and he says, sir, mm-hmm. would you hold still? 
And then it yep. cuts over to Llewellyn hunting, looking the down very the next scope, line. and he says, "Hold still." Yes. To, so they're both yeah. they're both hunters. They're both man and beast, um, showing kind of a ruthless efficiency over it. But then the the part of that that is supplemented is Ed Tom. You get the sense he's a good man and he's a good sheriff. He was sheriff of this county when he was twenty five years old, but he is always at least a step behind. Not because he's bad at his job, but because he's an old man in this country where it is no country for old men. Also, and he, also um, he's, huh? just to jump in, he's also risk averse. We'll talk more about yeah, it. I think, yeah. in a bit. We will talk about that. Uh, yes. I got a lot on that. Yeah. And uh, so he's, he's sort of always then that like step behind them. I think from the start, this is a brilliant way to set up the cat and mouse uh, premise that you were talking about. The fact, I mean, it's a very smart cat and a very smart mouse. There is no better way to do this style of storytelling this style of story or genre uh than to have two seemingly equals or two like two similar uh characters with similar skill sets uh opposed to one another uh you're obviously going to get more out of that dynamic and so from the yeah go ahead well i was just going to say something else that that comes into that as well as you know we, we get them both sort of hunting at the beginning but then it's ed tom that later tells that story about charlie Somebody. Charlie Wamser. There you go. Uh, and yeah. even in a thing of man against Contest steer, between man and steer, the outcome is not certain. There you go, right? So despite what Llewellyn is able to do both as a hunter and as a, a war veteran, um, he's up against something that he cannot understand. I like that you pointed out the parallel between, you know, uh, I guess it's Sugar's second kill mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the man on the side of the road and um, Llewellyn shooting at the deer. I think that also equates man and game, you know? Yeah. Uh, it equates man and animal. Yeah, Ed Tom talks later, but of course they don't kill him that way now. They just have the... Bolt goes in the steer's head and sucks right out, and the animal never knows what hit it, is what he says. Yeah. Captain Bolt um, pistol. I think it's also very appropriate that Sugar has a weapon that can be described in such a way. You know, uh, goes in, goes out, animal never knows what hit it, and, you know, death comes in the night like a thief. You know, it's... Uh, He's untraceable. He's quick. He he you know he preys on the unsuspecting, and just suddenly you're just dead. You're crumpled in a heap on the side of the road, and your car stolen. I'm gonna shift gears real quick into the filmmaking. Um, I I think that you know I don't have to tell you guys the Coen Brothers are some of the most technical, the best technical filmmakers around. They got Deacons behind the camera in this one. Um, <laughs> one of one of two films he's nominated this year for for a he's double Award. nominated this year. Lost in both yeah. somehow. <laughs> I mean, not somehow. Like Dude, I, I get how. Those two of and, his like, best works, no question. They are two of his best works. Um, the sound, the sound design. There's no music in this, or there's very, very, very little. There's 16 minutes of music. And, and, uh, most of that's most of that's got to be credits, I imagine, right? That's including credits. Yes, 16 minutes includes including credits. credits. I think there's music. I think there's like a very, very, very slight cue that I maybe I'm mishearing it, but during the coin toss scene, there's a very mm-hmm. slight music cue. And then when Ed Tom comes upon uh, Llewellyn at the hotel after he's been shot by the Mexicans, I, there's definitely music there, too. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any spots there's music that you guys know of, TJ? Not that I recognized, um, hmm. but it, it, very sparse. Very, yeah, it's, very sparse. Yeah. yeah, on purpose. I mean, Carter Burrell, who's the, the uh, responsible for the score of this film. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I love his music. Even even he is kind of at times in this film. It's hard to tell where he ends and where the sound editors step in, because yeah. a yeah, lot yeah. of this film, the the where you would normally have music, 
instead the film is relying entirely on some kind of sound some kind of some kind of noise or sound in the film whether it's footsteps on the wood floors of the hotel or the sound even the transponder serves as music the little mm-hmm. the beeping yeah. uh it, and i i always love the scene of Llewellyn in the hotel like you know cutting like cut using a bolt cutter to cut the hangers and to saw off part of his shotgun and the, the stickiness of the duct tape around the around the tent poles like there's a lot of sound design there it's very like loud um even though there's no score it's it, it you know it's the clicky and the clacky and the in the rippy it's you know it's it's all good stuff there you, that's you can't beat the clicky the clacky yeah the, the clicky and the clacky and the rippy yeah yeah uh speaking of like subtle filmmaking pieces the 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 coin toss scene there's an extremely, extremely slow push in on Shigur's face during the coin toss scene. And that's one of the few times there's any kind of push in. Um, there's there's pans and there's whip pans and stuff like that. But like the camera doesn't move a whole lot. Um, there's some handheld stuff when again, when Ed Tom shows up uh, when Llewellyn dies, basically. But um, pretty low key camera work for the most part. And but like, be- yeah, well, and I think that's in keeping with what we've described as the kind of minimalist style of the soundtrack as well, and the importance that silence plays. And this is an interesting, you know, at, when we talk about adaptation, a lot of the time people just talk about like, oh, no, they cut nearly headless Nick out of Harry Potter. I'm so upset. But <laughs> what's really interesting about this adaptation is those are cinematic aesthetic qualities that uh, mirror and graph qualities of McCarthy's writing style. So McCarthy's writing style, often he'll have large exchanges of dialogue and the dialogue's unattributed. Um, he often doesn't use punctuation and instead opts No quotation for, marks ever. Right. Instead opts for polysendaton, um, which... I don't know what that means. Uh, that's when you... So instead of saying, like, I ate bread, comma, milk, comma, and eggs, you would say, I ate bread and milk and eggs, no commas. You just keep the ands in. Um, and... And... So it's also a very, very sort of sparse and minimalistic writing style. It's very bare. Later, in something like The Road, he seldom uses uh, polysyllabic words, even, opting for um, kind of a more simple diction. So can we talk about, in terms of uh, directing, I brought this point up with Michael Clayton that one of the things that impressed me about the directing in that film was the casting. The casting in this film, in a lot of Cohen films, is incredible. Um, you know, you have the, the three principles, which we can say more about, but that being Javier Bardem, who wins an Academy Award and gives a pretty iconic performance. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones is my favorite part of this movie. He's insanely oh, yeah. good in this movie. Um, the more I watch it, the more I appreciate him in it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Josh Brolin. Uh, Josh Brolin's such an unsung hero, I think, because he often plays these very... Uh, he often gives these very reliable performances next to something that outshines him. You think of something like Milk. Uh, where he plays Dan yeah. White, and it, that's a very thankless role uh, in that yes. film, but it's next to whatever shenanigans Sean Penn's doing. Uh, <laughs> even even his biggest role, Thanos, a lot, you don't actually like see him really. So, and and you know he played George W. Bush and managed to do that without making George W. Bush into a total like cartoon or straw man. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm quite fond of Josh Brolin, um, but even the yeah. the smaller performances in here, Tess Harper as at Tom's wife, um, uh, Kelly McDonald, Kelly McDonald is Kelly amazing so, in this movie. So good, uh, Barry, Jean, yeah. Barry Corbin, who plays Ed yes, Tom's uncle, is fantastic. And then even the roles of like the tent pole guy, 
Or the woman that's like, did you check his trailer? I can't give out no information, sir. <laughs> like those those yeah. people that have like three it's lines or one It's got two double beds. They're, they're perfect. They're perfect. Yeah. Oh, um, all, the, all of the little character performances, all the little character actors in this film, um, they, 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 they really embrace the like there are no small roles kind yeah. of kind of yeah. mindset cuz even as we were talking about earlier this the ga- the gas station sequence oh like, my gosh that doesn't work without that guy right it's a yeah. fit, it's such a brilliant performance from and I wish I one scene Gene something but he's brilliant my one complaint this is like my one complaint about the film Gene Jones by the way there you go Gene the Jones. Actor. um Beth Grant plays Carla Jean's mom yes and she's fine, but I don't understand why they cast a younger woman and put her in old woman makeup because it's very distracting to me. That's a good point, yeah. I think she gives a fine performance, but it just is kind of the seams are visible there. Sure. Yeah, I agree. She's, yeah. she was in her 50s probably at that time. So it's the it's the wig and the wig the, the wig stands Yeah, the wig stands out. She's she's uh, she kind of fits into the 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 universe of these characters. But, uh, yeah, the wig, the kind of, of her appearance is a little distracting. She's also kind of the only character that I feel like her dialogue feels written to me. Mm-hmm. And um, everyone else, it, seems, it just sounds like it's coming straight from their brain and out of their mouth. Mm-hmm. But for, for her, it sounds like she's reading a script, you know? She sounds she sounds like the only, let's be honest, she sounds like the only character that might have been written for a, like a like intolerable cruelty, for example. Mm-hmm. Another kind of sillier more obviously comedic mm. Coen Brothers movie. Uh, Stephen, Stephen Root. Root. Woody yes. Harrelson. Stephen Root. Woody Harrelson. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Uh, the only thing, the last thing I want to say about, like, the, I guess the filmmaking stuff is, like, it doesn't hold your hand, which I always appreciate. And, like, that may bring a lack of clarity on first viewing on some aspects. But when you've seen this movie as many times as me and TJ have, and I assume Ken, too, like, you, you know, pick up on stuff i i got this on first watch but just like a a, a nice detail that I, it's easy to overlook is the first time sugar's in the hotel room after he shoots three mexicans and is looking for the box there's a close-up of his of his hand as it comes out of his pocket and he's got his coins and he grabs a dime and he uses the dime to unscrew the the screws on the air vent to get the air vent off so he can look inside the hvac for the book for the for the bag. And then at the end of the movie, all we need to see is the air vent with a dime next to it. And we know that Sugar got the money. Like, that's the only confirmation that it was Sugar himself who got the money and not the Mexicans who's, who killed Llewellyn. Is just showing us the dime. I think that's good stuff. Likewise, uh, the way that the film uses um, editing later to... It, it's a pretty brutally violent movie, but it also... But progressively less so. Progressively less so. It gets progressively less violent. I think perhaps the nastiest kill is the the first one, the choking with the handcuffs. Uh, Yes, certainly the most certainly most intimate and in your face kill, and the the longest. Right? It takes yeah. Like, I, I, like, other people just get smoked, like, but um, I mean, he, he shoots. He shoots the he shoots the three Mexicans in the hotel room, and it's extremely violent but it cuts away very quickly. Yes. Right. You don't get any cuts. Right. It's a lingering and, and it I mean it's the it's the full murder from beginning. I mean yeah. from the moment he attacks him through to when he is strangling him so hard that it literally cuts his throat. Yeah. Like And then by the end and of the also film, cuts then, his wrists. Then all they all they need is him checking his boots, which I want to talk more about that mm-hmm. later or yeah. can you get those crates out of the bed of your truck and, and then, then <laughs> cut to him yeah. washing the feathers out of the back of the truck. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
the ones that takes place off screen as well. It's a film where you can tell that the directors respect their audience. Not saying that everybody watching the film is going to love it. Not not every member of the audience is going to get it, but it respects its audience to appreciate it for what it is and it appreciates its audience's intelligence like those who are going to enjoy this film they don't need to be kind of guided they don't need to be told everything that's going on i like what you said tj about the him checking his boots because there is like also like a trails of blood motif yeah. in this yeah. um notably llewellyn shoots at some deer in like the second scene of the movie hits one in, in the hindquarters but it doesn't die it runs away with the herd so he's down where the herd once was, and he's following the trail of blood, and it's going like forward in the direction that he's walking, in the direction where the deer just ran off to. And then he comes across a trail of blood that's crosswise, that's going the you know laterally in front of him. And he's like, well, that's not from the deer. That's something else moving in a different direction. And that's when he looks over, sees the dog, and then notices the dog is moving away from something. So he goes the way the dog came and finds the, the trucks and the drug deal gone bad. And then also, um, uh, Sugar takes off his boots to approach the hotel room to ambush the Mexicans. Uh, when he shoots Carson Wells, very notably, it, there's a shot of Carson Wells's blood approaching Sugar's boots, which he casually just lifts and puts on the bed in a very chilling but kind of cool <laughs> moment. And then um, there's like several shots of like boots walking, like after after the hotel encounter where Sugar and Llewellyn shoot each other basically there's a great shot of Llewellyn walking towards the border and it's a shot of his boots and like blood is pouring out of his boots as he's walking and I think we get, we probably get a similar shot at some point of Shiger, um as he like you know pulls his boots off after he gets the supplies from the pharmacy and just blood pours out of his boots and then finally as TJ said the only indication we have that he killed Kelly McDonald is he walks out of her house and checks his boots for blood before continuing on it's a great. It's the. It's a great. It's so good. It's such it's a so great good. moment because you're not yeah. sure what happens. That cuts to him walking out, and the moment he checks, you're just like, "Oh well, bye, oh, Carla Jean." I know what happened in there. Yeah. Just exactly. a footnote: we have to talk a lot about that scene later. Yes. Sure. That's oh, you're talking about the scene with Carla Jean, or just the shot and, of and the, the successive one, the last. Okay. You know. Well, let's talk about it now. Okay. Let's talk about it now. So this is presumably months after, like, Llewellyn is killed by Mexicans and then Sugar comes back to the hotel later that night after Llewellyn's killed and gets the money and Ed Tom also comes to the hotel room late at night um, and they have a non-encounter basically and then presumably months later Sugar shows up at Kelly McDonald Carly Jean's house and does what TJ? Well he's waiting in her bedroom on the chair and she says immediately like I knew this wasn't over and I knew you were crazy when I saw you sitting there, right? Um, he says, uh, she says, I don't have the money. And he says, you know, I have to kill you. I promised your husband. And that's some sort of absurd logic to her. But it calls back to when Carson Wells tells them, you know, he has principles. They're messed up, but he sticks by these principles. And he would kill you just for the inconvenience of it. So he shows up with her there. And this, this scene, for me, um, <laughs> upon watch, like, 12 or whatever i I finally was like i think i i think i understand this now uh yes obviously he kills her because we see the boot business but when i first saw this movie and i think part of why the anton sugar character is somewhat iconic is because he is almost but not a figure he's almost but not just like a mythical presence that's non-human he's almost a supernatural force 
I yeah. think I think what's important about the scene though is that it underscores that he is human. Um, not in the sense just because he was hurt, but because he the whole time. He's, you mean the scene immediately after this? Uh, after the Carly Jane. Yeah, but starting starting here because she throws him off. He's trying to he say, does. "I'm like a grim reaper. I'm a form of death." Well, sorry, I flipped it, and I'd like to I have the morality you, of the coin toss. Yes. And oh, yes, 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 well, yes, yes, yes. I have to now. And she refuses. Yeah. She refuses. She doesn't play his game to call yeah. it. She says, "It's not yeah. the coin has no say. It's just you." And then he kills her. So what he's done in that moment is, for the first time in the film, uh, he killed unnecessarily. Right. Hmm. And he's, by choice, he's, by choice. Right. He is. He has chosen then to obey his ordering like logic, which is two facism. Um, and the whole time he's working on these binaries, you know, heads or tails. If you call it or you don't, you win or you lose. And then immediately after that, also operating on said binary, uh, red or green light, stop or go. He's got the green and he goes. Right. He does. Yeah. But you can't trust that because shit happens and he gets T-boned. <laughs> right. <laughs> And and so that I, I think suggests that she kind of deconstructs his game and throws him off as this force because he's now made this choice to kill, um, such that he too is prey or subject to being blindsided by the like death drive and impulse of nature to destroy. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I mean, I always I always tie together. Carla Jean throwing him off and then him getting T-boned. Like I always tie yes, that together. Yes. But like the but the idea that it's because he's killing unnecessarily or like by choice. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Well, I like that a lot. As yeah, as she is pointing out, as the, the throughout the film, yes, he is serving kind of as he is death, more or less. It's kind of like, you know, it's almost like Ingmar Bergman or something. It's like That's certainly how he sees himself, where he's uh dispassionate and just consistent basically well he's and he, he's holding up to the principles of death or at least the principles of death as we learn in the film like ellis's speech right before uh we see carla jean um when when bell goes to visit ellis ellis is the one who lays out the fact that you it's coming it's coming for everybody like and it's always been like this right yeah when you what yeah. he says, uh, what you got ain't coming. nothing new, right? That's this country is hard on people. What you got ain't nothing new. You can't this country's hard on people. You can't stop, you can't what's, stop coming. what's coming. Ain't all it waiting, ain't all on, waiting you. on you. That's vanity. Exactly. Yeah. Just the record. I'm going to cut out one of us saying it so that there's only one person saying that. In the I, I thought your harmonies were beautiful, though. <laughs> okay, we'll see. We'll see. This, we'll see. <laughs> this though is what we're. I mean, he he's throughout the film the only character and. Another, I should say that we do have that moment in El Paso that evening, cat and mouse back and forth, where this is where we're shown just how effective Llewellyn can be, that he does actually get him. I mean, he does get Anton Chigur here. Uh, he does cause him to hurt. He causes him in the hospital. Carson Wells says, "You've seen him, and you're still alive." Yes. And he's like uh, impressed, and like I'm impressed too. Yes. <laughs> I'm impressed that Llewellyn has seen Chigur and not and is alive to tell the tale. Right. Well, and I mean to be to be clear, Anton doesn't. He knows he doesn't need to go chase him down in Mexico, but like Anton knows where he's at, and the only reason you figure the next morning that that Llewellyn is still alive when he wakes up on that band, you know, next to the mariachi band, and is allowed to be taken to the hospital, it's because yeah, he did in fact 
he did in fact hurt Sugar enough. Sugar's got to go figure himself out. He's got to go recuperate for a, a, a second. That's that is the first instance we get where Shakur is, is not in fact some kind of supernatural being. He is in fact human. He can be he can be caught, but it's not until the end that we see him fully realize it. Because in reaction to getting attacked or getting shot by uh, Llewellyn, as Josh was saying, he's almost just kind of inherently, robotically, instinctively knows what to do. Knows exactly what to do yeah. to fix himself. Yeah. Just, in, just yeah. very naturally. He's like the he's like the Terminator T one thousand T two or something. like knows that. Knows to blow up. Knows to blow up the car as a distraction. Go to the pharmacy. Knows exactly what he's looking for. And then he goes to the hotel. The, what does he do when he walks in? He puts down the plastic sheeting. He's got everything set up and prepared. It's like this is a guy who knows exactly how to take care of himself when shot. Um, yeah. And it's not. It's a gruesome, gruesome injury. And there's some there's some great stuff about like. Um, him being a ghost, you know, like Ed, Ed Tom says that to his associate in the movie, like, I think he's a ghost. And um, when he shoots Stephen Root, he tells the account, the accountant asks, are you going to shoot me? And he says, that depends. Do you see me? And then at the end of the movie, when he comes across these two boys in the bikes, one of whom is Kaylee LeBlanger Jones, by the way, uh, future star of several Best Picture nominees. Um, he says, uh, you didn't see me. I was already gone. And he gives him a hundred dollars. So like, seeing him not seeing him yeah visually that's brought up as well with a couple of scenes where ed tom's right behind him the one is when they go into Llewellyn's trailer <laughs> looking for a man who has recently drunk milk um and, and there's a great shot of them in the tv the reflection in the tv that par- mirrors exactly yeah. yep that's the, exactly the point i was going to make and then likewise near the end when he re-enters the crime scene and that's a very strange scene, the way that it's edited, because you get the sense that they're there at the same time. But if you watch when the door opens, uh, the the lights from his car, from Ed Tom's car, cast his silhouette upon the back wall. But it's uh, kind of refracted in such a way that there's two shadows there. Um, two shadows of his outline upon that back wall. Are you saying they're not there at the same time? I don't think they are. They're not. No, I don't think they are. They're not there at the same time because it shows him standing behind the door. It, it's it's cut kind of like shot reverse shot thing, right? Right. Yeah. But I I think that that's a kind of like flashback, flash forward. Yeah. Intercutting, isn't that's it? That's the thing. I was honestly never very clear on that. Me, me neither, and I'm not totally yeah. confident in this reading. But yeah, I I don't think Sugar's there at the same time. I don't think so either because. Because when he comes in, he checks the room, completely checks. The he doesn't room. though. Is the thing no? He he walks in, never once turns around, check check behind the door. For example, he just walks in and walks straight to the bathroom. But when he opens the door, and looks the, at the door. The door fully swings open though. There's no room for a person to be behind the door. It fully swings open to the wall. Know. I mean, there could be. I don't really know. I, mean, I don't really know how how much room there is behind the door between the door and the wall. He's up on the ceiling like Spider Man. <laughs> yeah, it's like Spider-Man 1 when the blood drips off his yeah. thing and Norman sniffs it out, but it's, you know, except it's Timely Jones. Like Dracula dead and loving it, he leaves and slams the door and then Sugar falls. <laughs> <laughs> and then Peter says a bike messenger to knock me down, but Norman realizes that he's Spider-Man at that point. That that happens in No Control, man. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. It's This is all tied into the MCU, folks, if you're, if you're a and big then, fan. And then Willem Dafoe says, out, am I? And then tosses a pumpkin bomb. That also happens in No Control Men. I think. I could be getting things. Uh, can I get back to some Anton Sugar stuff real quick? I guess. Okay. Does he have pumpkin bombs? Uh, 
Not that I recall. I think that was cut out of the film. But so he is kind of another addition, another version of a similar character that shows up earlier in McCarthy's bibliography, which is the judge from Blood Meridian. Um, wait, wait, wait. Let me intro. Welcome back to TJ's Literature Corner. Continue. Yes. So the judge. Um, the judge is terrifying. He shows up in various places in that book and just wreaks utter horrible indescribable violence upon people and he seems to be able to kind of travel through space like he's in places more quickly than people can actually travel um he's described in the last line of the book as he never sleeps the judge he is dancing dancing he says that he will never die it's a terrifying character but there's an interesting bit in there uh where the judge is talking and he says that war is the ultimate game because war is at last a forcing unity a forcing of the unity of existence. War is God. And in the, mm. the novel, No Country for Old Men, uh, Ed Tom says you can't go to war without God. Now, given that a lot of the characters in here are Vietnam War veterans, I think there's a subtext to the movie wherein existence is something that is given by God, but that doesn't necessarily, for McCarthy, even though he's Catholic, doesn't necessarily mean it's good, because it's wrought with constant war it's constant predator versus prey it's a constant battle between uh good versus evil and so existence is like an everlasting war and that war is something that um kind of comes from god in a sense um and i think that's something that's that's underneath the film as well i agree well, that sounded really smart, and like I guess I agree in concept. I should digest it a little bit more before I just say I agree, but I think I agree. Um, one thing that struck me on this most recent watch that I'd never thought of before, even though I've seen this 10 plus times, 20 times maybe, is can we assume that Shigeru is Mexican, of Mexican descent? No. No? I don't what is think he? so. Um, at least, again, in, in the novel, uh, McCarthy said he purposefully, Shigeru's a made-up name, um, and he purposely made him ethnically ambiguous so that people didn't try to place some sort of like political reading on his backstory. And that actually McCarthy says he intended that um, it being a post 9-11 novel, it's in 05, that it's supposed to represent this threat of a violent foreign other, but not one that's tied to geopolitics. That said, though, like who ultimately kills Llewellyn? group of mexicans yeah the drug and, you know cartel. the drug yeah the, people Which, the avengers from. should have just called the mexican drug cartel to kill thanos like <laughs> well also like llewellyn steals two million dollars ostensibly from this group of mexican men and then a group of mexican men comes and kills llewellyn and like i it struck me for the first time watching this on this most recent watch is like the united states and mexico fought a war over this land 140 years before the events of the movie but I wonder if there's anything to that, like a extension, like this, this lawlessness in, in, in this part of Texas is still kind of like being fought over to an extent. Am I, am I reading too much into it? The fact that it's like Mexicans versus Llewellyn. I don't think so because that's uh, again, very important in Blood Meridian. And it's very important in the only screenplay that McCarthy's ever written, The Counselor. Um, that's also about um, U.S., Mexican border politics, the permeability of the border, the violence that crosses up upon both sides, and that that history is can never be done. Um, so no, I think that's that's apt actually. It's a 
controlling influence in how all of these people seem to live their lives. I mean, we hear from from Bell. He doesn't seem to have a particular particularly fond impression of Mexicans. He kind of he doesn't he doesn't really bother with like, you know, following up or investigating too too much into the drug cartel fight that happens technically within his jurisdiction. No. He's just, you know, it, it this is what happens with these guys more or less. His attitude is like, well, that's just how business is done. Well, we'll co- we'll come back to that because I want to talk about that. And actually actually like I want to I want to build to that right now. Uh, I want to talk about the opening voiceover and opening images. Um the movie opens with voiceover from Ed Tom kind of like waxing poetic about the good old days, about how um Old timers, the old time sheriffs. Some of them didn't even carry guns, and some people find that hard to believe. Jim Scarborough never carried one. That's the younger Jim. That's a great detail. Yes. Calling him the younger Jim. That's that's so good. And he in that speech evolves into him talking about the crime of today and how it's the crime. See these days, it's hard to even take its measure. Like you don't, I don't want to push my chips forward and face something I don't understand. You know, so what he's saying is it used to be a simpler time. You didn't have to carry a gun. But now the crime nowadays seems more evil and more incomprehensible, you know. And notably, as he's giving this narration, and I wish I could cite where I first read this. I think it was on RogerEbert.com, but it wasn't Ebert himself. It might have been Matt Zoller's site or something like that. He was talking about the opening images and how, like, the first image is barren land with the sun kind of just rising. And there's no, like man-made anything in sight it is just nature and then the next shot is also just nature the sun's a little bit higher and then the next shot there's a fence so it's like the first the first like hint of borders and law and then the next shot there's like a one of those windmills that we see and like you're seeing more signs of civilization and like it, it progressively gets from like untamed to civilized to an extent the shots progressively show more and more of mankind until eventually you get the cop car and the deputy leading sugar to the cop car again the line of law and lawlessness basically the movie with its shots is, is moving you from lawlessness to lawfulness and ed tom waxing poetic the whole time you know i think that's very interesting but you know the narration's about the law having difficulty catching up with what they're up against you know and it's interesting that when he says to face something I don't understand, we see a shot of the air tank as he says that, as the deputy puts the air tank in his car. Because at the time, no one in the audience knows what that is for. Correct. But within fi- within the next two minutes, we're going to see someone get murdered with it, you know? There's something important about this, if I remember this correctly. Uh, that's where the monologue in the novel stops, to meet something I don't understand. The Coens added, a man would have to put his soul at hazard. Which then ties us to the sailing to Byzantium poem. And he'd have to say, okay, I'll be part of this world. That last bit, sorry, is the part that's that's added by the Coens, that he'd have to say, okay, I'll be a part of this world. That's a knowing yet passive resignation, which is char- characteristic of, you know, they often write characters that um, it doesn't seem like, it seems like they have a lot of disdain for. Uh, arguably, three of the um characters that they are the fondest of in their entire filmography ed tom i think is one of them and the other two i would say is uh lebowski and marge gunderson yep and marge gunderson at the end of that movie she's in the car with um peter stomare and she says and all of this for a little bit of money there's more to life than a little bit money you know don't you know that and here you are and it's a beautiful day i just don't get it and then the dude ends with the dude abides. 
right? So they're, the, the characters they hold closest to them are people that are a part of a world that is more complicated and chaotic than they are, yet they choose to live in it and go on in it and embrace the mystery to quote a Larry Gopnik. Exactly. Yeah, serious man. Larry um, Gopnik is another example of this character. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's arguable about whether he actually gets there or not, but, um, and, and <laughs> that's Ed Tom. Okay. I'll be a part of this world. Um, I, I, I don't get it and I'm putting my soul at hazard, but what's the alternative here? Well, you say that. And yet as Ken alluded, and as, as we can talk about now is Ed Tom's on the sidelines for most of this, most of this movie. So he's a step mostly back. by choice. he's a step back on purpose intentionally. I mentioned competency porn at the top of the discussion about how both Llewellyn and Shakira are extremely competent. Ed Tom is also very competent. Yes, like when he and uh, Garrett Dillahunt, who's uh, awesome deputy, in this as well. I don't think we he's mentioned so him good earlier. In this. But... I love. Oh, sheriff! We just missed him. <laughs> <laughs> we got strictly this. Garrett Dillahunt, I read, was almost cast as Llewellyn. He he, he auditioned, auditioned five separate times. Yeah. To be Llewellyn, and then uh, they gave Debrolin instead, but they cast Dillahunt as um, Wendell. Is that yeah. the name of the deputy? Wendell. Yeah, he had a good Wendell? year. He's, that he's, don't make a whole lot of sense. He's also he's the assassination. Also of, assassination. Yeah, yeah. Assassination he plays of Jesse two James. Olsen assassination Deadwood, James. which was like three or four years earlier oh. than this. Um, he's he's a really fine character actor. I really like him in the assassination of Jesse James. I love him in this. Uh, he's good in Winter's Bone. Three years later, yep. another best picture oh, nominee. I forgot um, he was in that. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Whatever happened to him? He's great. Yeah, he's, he's still he's, he's a great character. He still yeah. pops up from time to time. You'll see him in on, tele, on a television show or a movie, just in the he just pop in. I always thrilled to see Gary Dillon. But my, my point is though, the scene where he and Wendell go to the backcountry and like find the uh, the the shootout, the drug deal gone wrong. Like they know exactly what happened. Like they they're like, all right, we got execution style over here, Wild West over here. This means was this was two meetings. Um, like they're on it. Like they're they're good detectives, despite being like you know podunk small town local law enforcement they they're they're very they're very intelligent and um they even shot the dog even hell's bells even shot the dog um but uh but again ed tom is reluctant to put his chips forward to to allude to his opening narration when they come across the wellness trailer the lock is shut out he tells wendell gun out and up and he says what about you i'm hiding behind you he doesn't get his gun out. This is how. Well, I'm behind you. It's a funny line. It's one of the. It's one it of those is bits a funny of humor. Line. I'm behind you. It is a funny line, but if you take it in totality with Ed Tom's whole thing, oh, yeah. he doesn't get his gun out. He eventually does get his gun out at the hotel room at the end of the movie, but it's a very notable moment that he does do that. Correct. Um, that is the one of very few times he does push his chips forward because otherwise, um, he's sitting at the diner reading the paper, and Wendell comes up to him and says, "You know, we're going to go out to the backcountry," and Ed Tom notably says. Any more bodies accumulate out there? Well, then I guess I can skip it. <laughs> you know, he's he's not going back to the crime scene. He's staying behind his desk as most he can, you know? It's um, avoiding confrontation where he can. Yes. And it's important. You mentioned later on, obviously, at the end of the film, when they, we do show him take, remove his, his weapon from his holster. Like, mm -hmm. there's emphasis on it. There's a shot of the gun being taken, being removed. He is going to be prepared. He's prepared to use it. But it's even in the little things, like when he's in his office, he has his secretary basically running point for him. Like, she's the one who's yeah. going to call his wife yep. to tell him where he's yeah. going so that he doesn't have yeah. to do it. He's She's the one who has to tell the DEA, off, DEA agent off, basically. He doesn't want to deal with the DEA agent. He pushes him off as far as he can. The And in that same scene, the only time we ever see him 
become aggressive in his pursuit of anything and really be right on top of something is something he recognizes, which is a guy traveling down the highway. An improperly secured load. An improperly secured load of dead animal carcasses. He knows that. Oh, those are human carcasses, I thought. Are they, are they human? That was the people from the backcountry, okay. I'm pretty sure. That was the Mexican Oh, that's right. It was, yeah, that's right. He's deal. bringing the thing. Yeah, he's bringing the, the bodies in from the backcountry. But to your point, though, to your point, though, when he springs into action and puts on a stern face, it's when people are already dead. You know? Right. It's, well, and, it's and he knows, not properly securing the corpses. He knows Good how to deal with it. Good job, Ed Tom. Yeah, he knows how to deal with that, though. He knows exactly what that is, and he knows how to deal with it. And he also knows he's not in any, tr- he's not in any danger following up <laughs> the guy in the truck. Well, and he tells, he tells Ellis, you know, I feel overmatched. He does. Yeah. We'll, we'll come to that. We'll come to that in a second. You know who he is? Uh, this is just a, a nugget that has nothing. It's not relevant. But he's Detective Somerset from Seven. Hmm. He is. You know? Yeah. That's a good poll. Does the title refer to Ed Tom Bell? Yeah. TJ? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could also argue it kind of refers to Llewellyn because Llewellyn does push his chips forward and dies. He does not grow old. And Ed Tom does kind of arguably sits sits on the sidelines does not push his chips forward and he does grow old but in a way that as you just said he's overmatched mm-hmm. you know he can't he can't handle it out here that's why he has to retire well that's the thing it, it's the idea that you know if you live if you survive long enough and um, there's a question almost to your uh, question of your 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 competency in a way like the discussion or the the discussion he's having at the table with his wife at the end of the film like He's really questioning whether or not he's really done his dad and his, his ancestors proud. That's exactly right. That's yeah. Exactly. There's a question yeah. of family legacy. And it's like, he, but he did survive longer than his dad. He's, he's actually... Do we want to go there now or do we want to put a pin in that? That's what I was hoping to switch gears into. But if you want to oh, put a pin in it, we no, can No, no, no. Go to it. it. Go to it then. I was just... I didn't know if I should save my comments or not. Ken, Ken, like you just said, he said he had two dreams about his father and he said... I'm now older than he ever was by 20 years so in the sense I'm the older man. So you're right. He did outlive his dad, despite maybe not living up to the standard his father may have set, but continue. No, it's just, it's, it's, we see both him and, and Ellis, these two old men. And what do they have to wait for? Like he's retired, but he's not really, he doesn't seem like he's going to be very content in retirement. But oh, at the no, same time, not. he doesn't know what to do out there. Meanwhile, Ellis, clearly an old man, who lives in this seedy, rundown house on a large ranch in the middle of nowhere. He's got flypaper hanging from the ceiling. There's cats all over the place. He's in a wheelchair. He brews a fresh pot of coffee once a week, <laughs> even, if there, even if there's still some left. <laughs> He's, this is what you have to look forward to in this part of Texas, apparently. Well, he, was also, he was also shot presumably on the Correct. job yes mm-hmm. and that's why he's paralyzed so he also kind of enc- encountered something that he couldn't handle and then tells the story about the man that gets killed in in his doorway over their uncle yeah. yeah yeah but that happened to their uncle in 1909 that's part of elsa's point like it's always been like this yeah. what you got ain't nothing new this country's hard on people and this country there is not just el paso texas area it's the united states his, his two dreams. So, first one, I don't remember too well, but it was about meeting him in town somewhere. He's going to give me some money. I think I lost it. I think that represents Which is a, that... The, abdication of responsibility. And that his dad probably would have, if not succeeded, died tracking down sugar right. in the money. Yes. Right? Uh, the yes, yes, yes. the second one 
We were back in older times. I was on a horse going through the mountains at night. I, I love this so much. I, I love this so much. I, I, I know people don't like this. Some people don't like this ending. They're wrong. This is, yeah. this is incredible. Continue. Sorry. No, uh, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold and there was snow on the ground. And he rode past me and kept going. He never said nothing. Just going by. He rode on past. And he had his blanket wrapped around him and his head down. And when he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire in a horn the way people used to. And I could see the horn from the light inside of it. About the color of the moon. And in a dream, I knew he was going on ahead. And he was fixing to make a fire somewhere out there and all that dark and all that cold. And I knew whenever I got there, he would be there. And then I woke up. Lot to unpack there. Josh, you loved it. You go. Well, as he said a few sentences earlier, his father, he's older than his father ever was by 20 years. So his father died a lot younger than Ed Tom has lived. So I, you can read a clear, direct line of his father riding up ahead of him in all that dark and all that cold. And he's, he's going ahead of Ed Tom in death. And when Ed Tom eventually dies, his father will be there waiting for him. And he's about to fire for him in all that dark and all that cold. But then the final line is, and then I woke up, implies that like, well, that's a nice thought, but you're fucking dreaming, Ed Tom. That's not how it's going to be, you know. It, it brings up kind of a religious symbolism, so to speak. But this question of whether or not he he's he's content with thinking or believing himself, believing that there's an afterlife, that there's a next chapter, that after all of this, that there's, you know, there's something left. And he's trying to convince himself, but then he wakes up. It's a dream. Like the idea that his dad is waiting for him, that there's some kind of, some kind of, uh, I don't know, prize at the end of all of this. There's some kind of peace. I read this a little bit differently. And then I woke up. Could that also mean he got some sort of enlightenment? Could be. He got some sort of peace. He's he's certainly restless, but um, I I think what you know he he goes before him in death, and that the symbol of the fire is very important. Um, in the Road, which is McCarthy's next novel, uh, it's about a father and son traveling across the apocalypse. Um, hope, Pulitzer surprise with a novel. Hoping that they can get to the coast and that something's there. They don't even know what's there. But whenever they encounter cannibals or bad people on the road, uh, the father assures the son, despite the horrible things that they have to do, that they're quote unquote carrying the fire. And he keeps, and then they meet somebody. He says, well, "What about them? Are they carrying the fire?" And um, it's not just you know bringing light and warmth, but it's also then the symbol of um, the goodness of people, right? The warmth of humanity. And so he's saying that, you know, I'm going to die and I'm living right now in this dark world. And my father went into the dark world, whether it's the afterlife or whether it's um, this country that's tough on people. And yet he's still out there and the dark overwhelms, but there is a place of fire. Right, there is a place of fire that's waiting for me. Tended by his father, and and held by held in the, in a horn, right? And a horn is what the biblical heralds had. Um, so I think there's something that's like relevatory to this apocalyptic vision that he's having at the end. And I also have to point out that I think his father's only mentioned twice uh, in his final dreams and also in the opening. Right, he says, uh, "My father and I were sheriffs at the same time. Him up in whatever county, me down here. I think he was proud of that. I know I sure was." I just wanted to mention that. Oh, or yeah. point. I just wanted oh, to like, bring that in. That's right. Yeah. Um, but uh, so let's, Josh, I'm going to throw it back to you. Um, you said, I love this. It's a perfect ending. Those people are stupid. I remember there was in the theater a audible, ah! um, that's exactly what it sounded like, uh, made by 30 people who are not serious film people complaining about 
uh, it, this didn't end in a shootout between Tommy Lee Jones and Javier Bardem. Why is this a perfect ending? Well, as we said, thematically, the movie is Ed Tom Bells, you know? And, like, him reckoning with his own capability and also, like, what what's out there. And what's out there is Anton Chigurh and, like, that unstoppable, unspeakable evil, you know? And, like, him reckoning with the fact that he can't handle that. And so he's got to take a step back. And, like, I think, Ken, you said he's going to be restless in his retirement. That's, like, te- that's text. Like, that <laughs> breakfast conversation he has with his wife, he, like, he's already restless. That's we don't, We're not reading into that. That's, that's there in the movie. I think it's a perfect bookend to the opening narration, which I always found interesting. And, again, like, the this movie's a push-pull of law and lawlessness, of good and evil. And I think it's a, a fascination, fascinating summary's the wrong word, but uh, note to end on. In that push-pull is Ed Tom reflecting on these things, reflecting on his father, and reflecting on what they're up against, what all good people are up against, if you want to get a little more philosophical about it. And I think to build on that, um, some part of what's frustrating about it is this is a neo-Western or an anti-Western. Yes. And mm-hmm. what this ending solidifies then is that the lawman, the what traditionally would have been the John Wayne figure, comes to a resignation uh, literally from his job, but also in a, a passive acceptance, that there is a limit to the frontier, that good may not always triumph over evil right away, um, and that mi- the myth and tradition of it, what sort of law and what sort of morals is going to take hold is a whole lot more complicated than previous visions of the West and American mythology. Also, it's a it's a film about a man who is is reckoning with the fact that his time has passed. Like to the to the sense that throughout our lives, every every generation or every group, they are responsible for the times in which they live, and there's always this push pull, right? Well, he's now beyond the point of being able to participate really in this. Like throughout the film, the two strongest uh, the two strongest characters we see and really fighting this out is obviously Sugar and Llewellyn. Uh, they're both about the same age. And they're the ones having it out really in the film while Bell is, as we said, kind of on the outside. And he's because he's at the end of his career. And the the title of the film, No Country for Old Men, as TJ says, comes from a, a Yeats uh, a Yeats poem in which he's referring to Byzantium, which is in often is often, you know, heralded as one of the great periods of human history when there was kind of a perfect balance. Like it seems that the generation at the time was learning from the predecessors and, you know, operating on with full knowledge and skill and capacity from everything that come before them. Whereas in this film, we get at one point when he's in El Paso at the diner with his uh, counterpart in El Paso, the El Paso sheriff and the El Paso sheriff is like, got people, what's wrong with people now is you got people wandering around with green hair and, and bones in and their noses. bones in their noses like which that's... you don't see <laughs> right yeah. correct but this is this is like it sounds on one hand like an old man just you know complaining about Alarmist. the youths especially because it's a period piece yeah it's this is set in the 19... fact that it's a period piece this is set in 1980. It, it takes place in 1980 1980 and like the fact that he's like being alarmist about how like morals are gone from society and the reason that we have people like sugar walking around is because people stop saying ma'am and sir and that kind of stuff that's what that's what he and ed tom are saying but like 
because we're nearly 30 years in the future from this conversation, we know that like people with green hair and bones in their noses is not the <laughs> sign of societal decay that they think it is, you know? Correct. But it is. But they don't understand. They don't really exactly. understand, they don't understand it. Yeah. They're, it's beyond yeah. them. They've, and I, Ken, I think this is me, just me rephrasing what you said, um, trying to understand it. So please let me know if I'm getting it wrong. But I think what, even with that title, No Country for Old Men, this is also about the fall of the American empire and the depleting yeah. importance of the presence of kind of American domination, perhaps is the word I'm looking for. And it, I think it's important that two of the characters are Vietnam War vets, which is, we, we lost that war. And they war. both get killed. We lost that and war. They both get killed. And this is in the 80s. Yeah. It's a it's amidst the Gulf War, uh, which didn't go so well either, right? So it's it's also, I think, about America sort of becoming an old man and being within a world that it no longer is able to exert its sort of dominant police power over. Is that fair? It, it can be. I think the word you're, the, the term you're looking for is Ameri- is like American exceptionalism. Yeah. And if you asked, if you asked, but with Bell, Byzantium, it's the the fall of the it's the fall of the empire, right? Correct. And if you ask Bell, I think yeah, that's kind of without without saying that because they're patriots. He and his counterparts are basically suggesting that that's what's at risk. That that this is what society's come to. Like they've got this this look at all of these symptoms. And then look at what look what you've got in sugar. You've got this this ultimate evil, this unraveling. And ironically, he is a man of code and principles, theoretically mm-hmm. like them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, it's something beyond beyond their ability to handle or, or cope with. What else can we talk about about this movie? Uh, I think I've hit my topics. I'm going to ask you a difficult, really difficult question because, or a stupid mm-hmm. question. I'm not sure. Uh, you said this might be the best movie you've ever seen. Obviously, I'm quite fond of this movie. I love this movie. Why is this maybe the best movie you've ever seen? Uh, I think some context is required there. As I said, the the age in which I saw it, it really, really, really opened my eyes to like how good movies could be. I'm not sure there's a false note in it, minus like a couple complaints about that one actress's performance and also like the CGI deer look kind of fake. But other than that, it's like I think pretty like. You could, I think, study every shot of this and, like, glean information from every shot, every cut, at least in terms of, like, Brolin and uh, Tommy Lee Jones and and Bardem's performances. Like, every glance or tick you can kind of read into. I don't know. I don't know. That That is kind of putting me on the spot. Well, <laughs> but it, like, it sounds like you're saying, um, you know, part of it had to do with the time you saw it in your life, but also that, like, kind of everybody's at the top of their game. And to use a Josh Bradley quote, would you say there's not an ounce of fat on this movie? There's not an ounce of fat on it. That's for sure. Okay. You can't. I don't. I don't think you could cut a second of this movie. Mm. I think it builds beautifully to its climax, mm-hmm. um, and also like it's just like incredibly, incredibly entertaining. Mm-hmm. You know, and like I, I don't get sick of watching it. L- last thing, real quick, and I, I told you guys this off mic multiple times, but I'll say it on mic for the first time. I was in Vegas last year for two days, and. Two of my hours spent in Vegas, me and my two friends just watched this movie on my laptop in our hotel room, <laughs> like really for no reason. It, and it's, just, it's a perfectly, it's a perfectly, it's a perfectly lovely way to spend two I was hours there in with, Vegas, to be honest. I was there with two, I was there with two English PhDs and like we were talking about the book, like our, on, on our Friday night dinner, our first night there. And like, I don't know, man, I guess we got a couple of drinks in us and I'm like, let's just watch the Good Romance. So we did. 
I don't blame you. That sounds incredibly, fantastic. insanely watchable. To to for a movie to be that watchable, that's that's a high bar, I think. In like this passive flying college. If we might coming coming after our our previous episode, which we talked about Michael Clayton, we talked about uh, as close to a perfect script as we think you can get. Kind of the, a dying breed, even this kind of film made for adults. The fact that that script is so tight, so concise. Yet we all agree that we like this film better, that we think this film is better than Michael Clayton. It's because this is similarly such a perfectly written story. I agree. From beginning to end, there is, of course, in all these last three films that we're talking about between Clayton, No Country, and next week, uh, our, our, our final film out of the series, there is incredible tension in each film, and there's not a lot of dialogue considering how long these movies are and the film just allows the audiences to watch everything play out and allow the characters to play out their story real quick this has nothing to do with anything but i just wanted to mention it you mentioned the tension and some of the moments of tension in this are like unbearable and that they build so well and and in some moments of tension i kind of like take for granted now because i've seen it so many times but like Remember the first time you saw this and he's holding the gun on Carson Wells on Woody Harrelson's character and like you're just waiting for him to pull the yeah. trigger any second. It's, you know? it's a foreboding. Um, that's that's extremely tense. And also I didn't notice I can't believe I never noticed it till this time but like the phone starts ringing and like I, I imagine the first time I saw this I jumped out of my skin when the phone rang because again you are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the gunshot you know it's coming and then instead of a gunshot you get the phone ringing. It's very loud and jarring. And Shigeru waits until the third ring, and then on the third ring, he uses the ringing phone to disguise his gunshot, to muffle his gunshot. He he hears the first ring, hears the second ring to get a sense of, like, the cadence, how, how much time there is between rings, and then just before the third ring, he starts to pull the trigger, and it goes off as the third ring starts, so, like, no one else in the hotel would hear his gunshot, because it's disguised by the loud ringing. This is something else. Never picked up on that before. That, Never picked up on that, that before. That scene is so perfect, because you do. There's that foreboding, and you know the instantly the instant he sits down and starts talking to Anton, he starts off by trying to reason with him and offer him money, even though the last time we saw well, we saw Take Carson Wells. to an ATM. 14 grand in it. He was just across the river. He's just in Mexico telling Llewellyn, you can't make a deal with him. <laughs> even if you gave him... Even, he doesn't care about money. Even if yeah. you gave him money, he'd still kill you. And that at that moment, you're like, oh, you're, you're done for. You're doing the exact thing you said can't be done because you're done for. Now it's just a matter of when. What else, TJ? Uh, I don't think I have anything else. I think I've said what, else can? what I wanted to say. I, I think I, we could talk endlessly about individual scenes. I think the scenes at both the motel and the hotel are two of the most perfect sequences in cinema. Uh, I agree. It, yeah. Just the, also, again, examples oh of gosh. minimal to no dialogue in both of those sequences. It's just perfect tension. So, yeah, I'll say two things. Number one, uh, the scene of the, I guess, the hotel... I'm not sure which is the hotel, which is the, the hotel. The hotel. I think the hotel in El Paso. There's the guy at the front desk, and there's it's all in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, ho- uh, yeah. The mo- motels, you go from outside directly into your room. Hotels, you have to go through like a lobby to get to your room. That's the, that's different. So this is the hotel. When he finds the transponder in the money, and then he's sitting up, holding the gun, 
and then the feet appear under the door and you can see through the lighting under the door the two feet are there and then he goes and turns the light off that's so so good and also incredible 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 build of tension and he picks up the phone and calls the front desk yes. and you can hear it ringing that was what to and say. He, and it's after no one answers the front desk phone he came phone. in earlier when he checked in he mentioned to the guy call me if anybody checks in looking for and so and, the, guy, and the guy says, I'll be here till 10 a.m. Yes, I'll be here till 10 a.m. And so the, when he calls downstairs and you can hear the phone ringing in the distance downstairs at the front desk, just ringing. And no one answers. It's, yeah. Yes. You know exactly what's yes. coming. You're just not sure what to expect. And and speaking of, uh, you know, Shigur being a ghost, uh, he's a ghost throughout this sequence because, again, he disguises his feet by turning the light off in the hallway so that he can't see the two trunks under the light of the door anymore. And then, like, we don't see Shigur's face for another, like, several minutes, even though he, he shoots the lock off. He shoots at Llewellyn as he's climbing out the window. He shoots at Llewellyn as he's rounding the corner. Um, we see his re- First, it's just his reflection when he's walking around the corner. Llewellyn hops into a pickup truck with a guy who immediately gets shot. And then Llewellyn's, like, has his foot on the gas from the passenger seat and trying to, like, duck underneath the windshield and drive. And he gets like four or five shots come through the windshield again, all from an unseen gunman because you do not see Shigur at all. And it's not until, I don't know, a couple minutes after that, that Shigur is kind of like walking around trying to find Llewellyn and he gets shot himself, obviously. Yeah, the first it's when talking about that scene, the first time we actually see his face is the moment he's at a disadvantage and he becomes the prey for momentarily. Yeah. And he, and he gets shot. Yeah. He gets shot in the leg. Yeah. Uh, oh, the other thing is, um, I'm sure all of us spent some time on IMDb trivia boards back in the day. I certainly did. Uh, one of them that I always liked is the um, – there's arguably a callback to Fargo in that sequence where Llewellyn jumps out the window and then goes back into the hotel and, like, crosses through the lobby to get to the other side of the hotel. And he passes by the front desk and the camera is moving with him and we, we just see the empty chair. And presumably the desk clerk is dead just below, just out of view, but that's, like – Maybe a call back to Fargo and the toll booth operator as um, Jerry Lundergaard drives by the toll booth after Steve Buscemi's already been through. And you actually see the dead guy, like his legs are in the air in that one. But like, you know, passing by with a moving camera to an empty chair, I think is a possible Fargo callback. Also some f- fantastic uh, gurgling of blood in the throat when people get shot. <laughs> Stephen Root. Stephen Root. <laughs> Stephen the, Root in particular. Yeah. The guy in the truck too. The... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And the way, um, it's it's gross, but it is it cuts away quickly. With the, yep, the flapping arm when the when he goes to the motel room and shoots the Mexican, his arm just comes off, kind of uh, in a very very brief shot. When he shoots the guy in the shower and he just pulls the curtain, I'll be honest, pulls the curtain closed and shoots the guy. This is oh, again, it's a it's also a moment again of kind of black macabre humor. I guess I kind of chuckle at the moment because it's just. First of all, it's it's in character with Anton. He's going to close the... He doesn't want any blood on him. Um, as we see him, as we mentioned earlier about the boots, he's very careful. He just slowly closes it, turns away. He he sit After he cl- kills these three men, he sits down and takes his socks off. Because they got blood on him. He pushes, peels his socks off. Not a care in the world. Um, TJ, you said it was funny. The funniest line is when he walks back into the clothing store wearing his hospital <laughs> gown and says, you ever, you ever anybody walk in here with no clothes on? No, sir. It's unusual. <laughs> the way that okay, that actor doesn't he there's no judgment whatsoever in his delivery. Yes. It's the most non judgmental yeah. line. And I can't imagine anybody in that situation not being slightly judgmental, but nope. 
Shout out to that actor, who I believe, I believe, plays the Cather Cowboy on Last Week Tonight. For anybody who watches Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. I believe you are correct. Has appeared in that program. think of that, but yes, you are correct. Cather Cowboy. (laughs) What a a role. Uh, Should we talk about the Oscars? Yeah. That seems like a logical next step. This was nominated for... Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Roger Deakins, Best Film Editing, Roderick Jaynes, Best Sound Editing, and Best Sound Mixing. As I said, it lost Film Editing, Sound Editing, and Sound Mixing all to The Bourne Ultimatum, which, again, upsets me. If it's going to lose to anything, it should have lost There Will Be Blood, but it lost Best Cinematography to what, Ken? To There Will Be Blood, Robert Ellswit. There Will Be Blood, Robert Ellswit. And then it won the other four. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem, and Best Adapted Screenplay We will for Joel Nathan. Without doubt, we'll obviously be getting more into There Will Be Blood uh, that, that is yet to come. And we will have basically the same discussion, I'm sure, next week. I do wonder, and this happens multiple times in Roger Deakins' career, uh, wonder if, does he cancel himself out here with both No Country and The Assassination of Jesse James? Which, not as great a film as No Country or There Will Be Blood, but certainly one of the more beautiful films of his. I'm on record, not not on this podcast, but I'm on record saying that The Assassination of Jesse James by the Kyle Rupert Ford is the greatest cinematography I have ever seen in a movie, and it did not win the Oscar. That's weird because you've seen The Tree of Life. I have seen The Tree of Life, and Chiva Lubeski is really something else. What did that lose? That didn't win the Oscar either. Did that lose to Hugo, I think, for Best Cinematography? Yeah. The fact that I knew that offhand is... Sad. Impressive. Sad. Yeah, Impressive. Fun. Sad, serious film people. That's Sad what we're going to change it to sad film people. <laughs> so we can discuss this. <laughs> we can discuss this next week, but uh, There Will Be Blood was also nominated for eight Oscars. Yes. And they were nominated in six of the same categories. But we can talk about that next week. The Coens won Best Original Screenplay for Fargo. This was their only best adapted screen, their second screenplay Oscar, but first original. This is adapted. Yep. Their only best director win and their only best picture win. I mean, they walked away with three Oscars in the night. They did very well. They did. Um, and did. we, I think we discussed this earlier. They they could have easily walked away with a fourth for editing, um, if the yeah. the Academy had had just gone that way and not gone with the obvious pick. Yeah, this was a very this this is an unanticipated. Scott Rudin brought this to them initially, was my understanding. He did. Um, this is not one of their originals for only their second adapted. They uh, they really pulled off something uh, outstanding. Um, I am struck, as we discussed it earlier, uh, obviously Javier Bardem is nominated here. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones nominated for Best Actor for his other movie this year in the Valley of Allah, right. but right. not nominated opposite Javier Bardem. Uh, nor is Josh Brolin. It does. It does. It. Do you guys wish or or kind of a little irritated that nobody else got any love for this movie? For some reason, I thought Josh Brolin did. And looking at it now, I haven't seen Eastern Promises, and I haven't seen In the Valley of Allah, so I can't really comment on Timely Jones or Viggo Mortensen. But you know, you got Dan Davis and There Will Be Blood, Clooney and Michael Clayton, Johnny Depp and Sweeney Todd, which might be the odd man out, but I really really like that movie, so I'm not gonna smirch it do you hear that mark cummings is smiling he's happy that he <laughs> just brought that back around full circle but but to bring up what tj said earlier it's it's a it's a pretty it's a smaller performance from brolin i think he's excellent he's absolutely excellent but it's not very showy you know it's very um subdued you know he, he takes care of business like his character takes care of business 
Um, I love the scene where he's getting, uh, he's talking to Carson Wells in the hospital and he's kind of standoffish with Carson Wells to an extent. And Carson says, well, he might go to Odessa and then it switches to a close up for Josh Brolin. And he plays it cool for a second, even though you can read in his face, he's panicking. He plays it cool and says, why would he go to Odessa? But like internally, he knows exactly why he would go to Odessa. Um, That's just like a a good moment. I just want to shout out. I would have liked to see some love for Kelly McDonald. That would have been sure. cool. Yeah, because yeah. I think support, supporting actress this year was kind of weak. Uh, with no disrespect to Kate Blanchett, Ruby D, Searcher Runner, Amy Ryan, or Tilda Swinton. I would have loved to see Kelly McDonald getting there. Shout out to Kelly McDonald. She's one of those actresses who, she pops up, I guess, infrequently. And she's often in, She she's very selective about the movies I feel like she picks. Uh, but they run the gamut and she's always, always a pleasant surprise usually in movies that she appears. At least the bigger ones. I usually we usually have questions about like does this deserve its best picture nomination? How does this stack up against other best picture nominees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Would this be nominated today? This is one of the best movies I've ever seen. So I feel like it's like stupid to even talk about the, in those terms. Uh, so this is better than almost every best picture nominee I've ever seen in my life. I think it would be nominated today. This is an undeniably good movie. Personally, TJ, what do you think? Yeah, it's okay. I mean, stop I'm, it. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I would say yes to all of those things. Um, I think it's one of the best Best Picture winners. Um, I agree. I, I haven't seen them all, so I can't really say where, but it's one that, you know, that's a masterpiece. It's an all-timer. I do think it would be nominated today. I agree. I, I think the other things I want to talk about in this movie, we kind of have to table for the recap episode because I basically just want to talk about this in relation to There Will Be Blood. It's, yeah, it's hard that's to separate the two. Th- those are the last things I want to talk about, yeah. Yeah. They are, they are so intertwined um these two movies and they always will be for me in a weird way for josh but i think, I think could, we should table that yeah in a weird way for josh you, i guess you could say you could just you could flip a coin to determine which one should win here <laughs> uh don't put it in your pocket sir Call don't it. put it in your pocket Friend it's your lucky quarter last thing the, the coin toss scene um he is eating peanuts during the first part of this exchange that he's eating peanuts out of a little plastic bag yeah. That's exactly what I'm going to talk about. So he, in the middle of the conversation, right before he flips the coin, he takes the peanuts. It is crumpled. The peanut bag is crumpled up in his fist, and they sets. It's an insert shot, like TJ just said, of him setting the baggie on the table, and then it like slowly uncrumples. The crinkling without of his an, fist there, an expanding wrapper. It is. It is the unclenching of a fist, because just before he does this, he kind of sighs and says, "You don't know what you're talking about, do you?" And even though he's like built up his anger over the course of this conversation, he sets the bag down and it is un it is an unclenching fist. And that's when he flips the coin and says, just I'm through with you, call it. You know? Um, that is so good. That's a great detail, that's great filmmaking. Anything else before we wrap? TJ, anything? I done. Ken, you done? I don't have anything else to add right now, nope. I am terrified we didn't do this movie justice. The fact that we didn't talk for three hours, I'm like, well, we obviously missed something. But we talked for a good while, but... Remember our promise, an adequate film discussion. An adequate film discussion. That's the serious film people promise. Uh, the hope... You can, you can take that to the bank. The hope if you're listening, go out and watch No Country for Old Men. Experience it <laughs> yeah. yourself. I might watch it again tonight. If there's, we'll see. If, I don't really know. If there's anything we've mentioned that you didn't pick up on previously, look for it. Go back, rewatch it, look for it. If you don't like the ending, then you can direct all your tweets at Ken Dussold. Uh, 
Yes. Kids on Twitter. By all means, yeah. Ed Ed can do so. The poor guy who has that Twitter account is going to be in. I want to check if that's open. I don't know. I want to check if if that's open. Okay. I think I'm going to call it then. Heads then. This has been No Country for Old Men, Serious Film People. Please join us again next week for the exciting conclusion. Well, not the conclusion, but the last movie in our 2007 series, which is There Will Be Blood, written directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. I hope you join us then. I'm finished. Don't say that for the next week. All right, bye, everybody. 